The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the complex story of George Washington. Our founding fathers were far from perfect, a group of men that each brought their own radical ideas and stubborn 18th century traditions. But one man stood out from the group as indispensable, displaying quiet confidence, shrewd determination, and incredible personal strength. He's the one POTUS that never wanted to be POTUS, but we're sure glad he was. The father of our country and the cause he led. It's the focus of this second part of our two-part series on the revolution. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We're pleased to welcome back for a second episode, best-selling author Joseph Ellis. He's written several amazing books on the revolutionary period, winning all sorts of awards, including the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. He's also been on TV from time to time, offering his take on the History Channel and American Experience on PBS. He has a terrific new book out that we want to mention titled The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773 to 1783. We'll link to this book and all of his work on our AmericanPOTUS.com website. Joe, we're thrilled you decided to come back for another episode. We could get used to having you around. God, I don't know whether I could go beyond two, but uh, I appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, well, what it is, is in the in the COVID world that uh, we've been living in, all of us have been cooped up. And I guess I have, I, I need to talk to somebody and you guys have, yeah, you have things to say. Well, we're so glad we were able to fulfill that role. Yes. Well, we're honored, Joe. and Welcome back. I want to start with His Excellency, George Washington. Mm. And you begin that terrific book with a great analogy. You equate Washington to the man on the moon yeah. and your work as a historian, uh, you compare that to a lunar landing. So why has Washington proved daunting over the years for historians and for us as American citizens to fully understand. He is probably the sing a singular figure uh, in American history. He comes at the beginning, and that gives him an enormous advantage. I think he's probably the greatest leader in American history. He gets almost all the essential things right, except for one, and he acknowledged that. But, you know, he's on the dollar bill, he's on the quarter, so he's in your pocket or in your in your wallet all the time. You don't know it, but he's there. And he's got the biggest monument in the nation's capital, which is named after him. And yet there are no words on the Washington Monument. There are words on the Jefferson Monument and certainly the Lincoln Memorial, but there are no words except the graffiti uh, scrawled on the interior step uh, going up. So he's a kind of uh, silent you know, and he's also good at, Adam said he had the gift of silence. He was a man who was so physically impressive that he was used to just sitting there and letting other people go on and blather and then look to him for leadership. Taking him on is a huge task. 
but I did it at a moment when the modern edition of his papers, which is still not complete on the war or the presidency, but it was nearing completion. And so there were materials available to a historian that had not been available before. My predecessors as biographers of Washington were all distinguished people, but they wrote six and eight volumes each uh, to, to tell his story. And I didn't think that the American public or readership wanted six to eight volumes. When there's that many volumes, they look like coffins. And um, so the, the challenge was to to write a, a book of modest size within one volume. And that was a big challenge. I was talked into it by my editor at Canop, the late, great Ash Green, as I was fending about for a topic. And once I got into it, then, then that was good. When I was a kid, I was born and raised in Alexandria, Virginia, and I went to grade school at St. Mary's, which is six miles from Mount Vernon. Well, the nuns used to take us there almost every year because they had to do something with us. And, um, <laughs> and so I grew up as a young boy, aware of Washington uh, as this great man. And so as a mature historian, it was wonderful to try to go back. And you're almost going back in your own life as you go back to, to recover Washington's personality. In all of American history, there's no single figure like Washington. There's so much mythology surrounds him. You have to cut through. He doesn't tell you what he's thinking. His diary, as I've said in an earlier program, is about, you know, like when he's retiring from the presidency, after all these years of service in the army and in the presidency, here it is, uh, April 1797, and he's ready to leave. And what does he think? Temperature 38 degrees, like they like all days. <laughs> That's it. Very deep, yes. <laughs> yeah. So how do you tease out the mm -hmm. real man? Mm -hmm. He's the exact opposite of Adams. He, he, he gives you so little, but yet, and like, if you're trying to read the correspondence during the war, which is, as you can imagine, huge, at least 20 volumes, but a lot of those he didn't write. They're, they're battles, you know, they're what they call general orders. Hamilton wrote a lot of them. Other aides wrote them. So how much is him and how much is not? And so you've got to come to terms with what is essential and what to focus and, and then focus on that. I think the library at Mount Vernon helped in that regard. And again, back to the theme that I mentioned before, we're ready for flawed founders. When we look back at American history, we should be able to see triumphs and tragedies. We should be able to see a beacon and a burden. Uh, we should be able to see people who are not gods, who are like us in terms of their human imperfection. And Washington is such a creature, though I would say he's the only person I can mention who, without whom, we wouldn't have won the American Revolution. He was the closest thing to an indispensable man. And yet, and here's the biggie, Washington was an aficionado of exits. More than any president in American history, Washington did not want to be president. He really didn't want to be president. His letters during the presidency, half of them are about Mount Vernon. He wants to be back at Mount Vernon. But for that very reason, at the end of the war, when he surrenders his uh, sword and his commission in Annapolis, which happens to be the temporary capital, he doesn't do what Caesar did. He doesn't do what Cromwell did. He doesn't do what Napoleon's going to do or Lenin's going to do or Stalin's going to do or Mao's going to do or Castro's going to do or so many African presidents are going to do. And one contemporary ex-president is trying to do. 
he walks away. He sets the two-term president, which becomes a, an amendment to the Constitution in 1951, but that, that's not the important thing. He doesn't die in office. He's not a monarch. There's a separation between the man and the office. Every man who serves in the government, no matter how indispensable, is disposable. Uh, government of laws and not of men. Where did that belief in republicanism come from in Washington? And do you think he ever doubted it? He never, he never doubted it because he never had the, he, he really didn't want to be president. Or he didn't want, he didn't want to be head of the army uh, in 1775. Now, part of that, you got to get deep into him and you can get Freudian and, and, and go a little crazy here, but he was a man of enormous ambition. When, whenever he had an opportunity, as he would have in many cases, to achieve a significant office. He always said he didn't want it and that it, it had to be forced on him because he wasn't comfortable with his own ambition. He had great exterior muscularity, but he had greater interior muscularity. That made him worthy of our trust as, as, a, as the first president. Everybody could trust Washington with power because they knew that he didn't really want it. I've gone on too long on your first question, no, so let's leave some questions, <laughs> leave some time for your other questions. Uh, that was terrific. Let, let's step back into the revolution, though, for a moment. You state in another great book, American Creation, that especially after Valley Forge, Washington realized that the only way to lose the revolution was to try to win it. Mm. Can you explain what you meant by that and how that strategy was successful? At the early stages of the war in 76, it actually starts in 75. Note the war starts 15 months before we declare independence. But in the early stages, Washington was an honor-driven man who believed that a battle was a challenge to duel. And if some opponent presented himself on the field of battle, you were honor-bound to respond. This is not a good idea if you're, uh, con if you're commanding an army of amateurs against an army of professionals. And he almost loses the war in the first six months of the war in the campaigns in Long Island and Manhattan. He's inherently aggressive. He wants to, and even after almost being uh, captured on Long Island and then in Manhattan, he continues to believe that he needs to take the aggress aggressive role. And that's when he does it. Uh, on Christmas night at Trenton. It's a moral victory. It's sort of like Doolittle's raid on Tokyo. It doesn't really make a big difference, but it's a major morale booster. But he comes to the realization that in a protracted war, all he's got to do is keep the Continental Army intact. He doesn't have to win battles. He can lose his way to victory. His second in command, uh, Green, understands this too but that it's a lot easier not to lose than it is to win. It depends upon some level of support from the Continental Congress, later the Confederation Congress, and that becomes less and less over time. I mean, I think our understanding of the war, this is in the current book too. It wasn't as much in the in the book on Washington when I wrote it because I didn't understand it. Our experience in Vietnam and in the Middle East prepares us to grasp the dilemma the British faced in the American Revolution. And because they had to subjugate the entire population, and that was never going to happen. And that's what Washington came to understand. But it took him a while because he was a aggressive personality. And he wanted to win the war outright at the beginning. And it was it took time. It took Green to talk him into this. It took his staff, like Hamilton and Lafayette to hold him down, basically. But eventually he did. 
and he, he recognized that. And you got to understand, like when the war, when he leaves Mount Vernon in May of 1775, Appa, Lexington and Concord have just happened. He's wearing his military uniform, even though we haven't declared independence. And yet he knows it's a war. Uh, he knows it's going to be a full-scale war. And he says to Lund Washington, the manager at Mount Vernon, he says, Lund, when the British come up to Potomac, I want you to get out my books and Martha, presumably not in that order. <laughs> so you see, he is assuming he's going to lose everything. So when they when they say in the declaration, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, hey, that's not just um, Jeffersonian lyricism. If he lost and he was captured, they would have taken him to London. There would have been a show trial. He would have been hung, quartered, and his head put on a spit for people to see for the next six months. He knew that. My literary critical friends say this is not the right use of the term, but he is an essentialist. He knows what's important and basic. Yes, we have to commit now, early, before everybody, you know, and he's in, he's in, and he's all in. And then he comes to the realization that he has to fight a different kind of war, and he's in on that different view. He comes to the conclusion during the war that the United States needs to become a nation and not just a confederation. And he's right about that. Um, but he knows he has to wait for a while for that to happen. And then he's recruited to, to be chair of the Constitutional Convention. And I challenge you, you read Article 2 of the Constitution and you tell me what a president can do and not do. And you cannot figure it out. Mm -hmm. The presidency of the United States is not shaped by the language of the Constitution as much as it is by the presidency, the two-term presidency of George Washington. Would you say that was his greatest presidential achievement of setting those precedents? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, saying the cabinet, the, the idea there should be a cabinet, and the idea in the farewell address that our future lies to the West, not to Europe. He's also the founder of the realist tradition in American foreign policy. Nations do not behave on the basis of promises. They behave on the basis of interest. He would, he would not favor uh, going abroad on human rights rationales, on economic rationales, yes. But even in, at his time, don't fight a war for at least 20 or 30 years. And he sort of, he almost gets the War of 1812 right. Republics die in their cradle. Republics die in their youth. That's when we were most at risk and most fragile. And he happened to be in command. And that's what made the difference. Hmm. I thought it was interesting in your book, American Dialogue, you talk about that foreign policy approach of Washington and how it differed from Jefferson, that dichotomy between hmm. the realistic and idealistic and our foreign policy approaches was right there from the beginning. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yep. I'm glad you mentioned American Dialogue because I like that book. But I remember when it came out, a lot of people thought it was great. It got a great review in the New York Times. But the Amazon ratings were like five, 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 one, one, one. And I think that, that people on the right didn't like it because it said certain things about the need for economic inequality, et cetera. When I look back at that, I'm, I'm pleased at that treatment of Washington. Washington is also the one person in the found generation who believes that we need to reach and acts on his belief that we need to reach a just accommodation with the Native Americans. And the Treaty of New York is an attempt in 1790 to create homelands for Native Americans that will be bypassed by the white population. It becomes unenforceable because you just can't stop these people. 
um, they pursuing their happiness. But he alone among the founders attempts to take action to avert that tragedy. And he says at the end that the failure to end slavery is, he doesn't say it's my greatest failure. He has a way of talking about it. He says, the only unavoidable subject of regret. But he frees his own slaves in his will, the ones he owns, that about about half of the 317 slaves at, at Mount Vernon. And he provides for their education for 20 years afterwards in, the, in his will. And then many, many of them go on to establish a free black community in Fairfax, what is now Fairfax County. And um, so whereas um, Jefferson cannot believe that blacks and whites can live together, Washington believes they can. So does Franklin. So does Hamilton. Madison, no. And um, and this, I'm, I'm going to say something that carries us to a, maybe the wrong direction, but mm-hmm. the, the revolution creates the first in a Nash in a historical pattern that we're still living. The achievement of the revolution to put slavery on the defensive and to offer the possibility that emancipation is built in, creates a backlash because the question becomes, what do you do with the freed blacks? And in that backlash moment, I would say 80% of the white population believes that they cannot live together with us in harmony. In the North, we can have segregation because the numbers are so low. In the South, we're going to have to send them elsewhere. But that... This becomes the pattern. What Martin Luther King calls the arc of the moral universe. Every time there's a significant move upward on the arc, there's a step backward. After Reconstruction, you got Jim Crow. After the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65, you get the Southern strategy. And after that date, no Democratic candidate for president has ever won a majority of the white vote. And after Barack Obama, you get Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump is explainable without Barack Obama. I think that that there is this pool of racism beneath the surface of American society that's always been there and it probably always will. But that every step forward, it's ironic that is it is the fact that we're making progress that ignites the virus, if you will. There is a school of historians that I disagree with very profoundly that said the American Revolution was essentially a war to, to protect slavery. Just the opposite is true. It's the first time it challenges the existence of slavery. Washington is an excellent example of the education that he received on this issue during the course of the war. Billy Lee's with him all the way. The Rhode Island Regiment is the elite combat regiment in the Continental Army by the end of the war, and it's an all-black regiment. He grows in this moment. And, and so the question is, you know, what can you expect? And one, you know, I said before, we got to look back and see triumphs and tragedies, a beacon and burdens. That when we, that, that if you look back from your own political perch in the present and you see a straight line from your position to somebody in the past, look again, because it's not right. There are no straight lines in nature and there are straight political lines in history. It's always going to be paradoxical, complicated, and you cannot do your own politically correct isometric exercises against the founders, I think. In, in your new book, The Cause, you, you talk about that central contradiction of independence and slavery. Mm. You know, Looking back, was there any path at that time 
to union without the perpetuation of that institution, at least in the South? I think there was. That's what yeah. I want to write about next. Yeah. What, what, what was that? The path forward was to allow the northern states to begin to establish emancipation uh, there, close off the territories for expansion to slavery. They do that with the Northwest Territories, right? Right. right. They got to do it to Southwest too. Then end the slave trade, shut it off and make it only existent in the uh, state south of the Chesapeake. And I think Virginia might very well have gone the other way because Virginia tobacco is it's a horrible crop their their economy doesn't work with slavery anymore so that was the way forward and the great historian of slavery from Yale Doug, uh, David Bryan Davis had a great it's a, it's an awkward but a great phrase the perishability of revolutionary time as long as the cause is a remembered presence what it meant to fight this war, the sacrifices you made to oppose British tyranny. And remember, what we were arguing is that we were fighting a plot to enslave us mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. Brit. Abolition, and the first abolition society in the world is founded in Philadelphia in 1776. So that's the way to do it. But you had to do it fast. You had to beat the cotton gin. You had to beat the cotton kingdom. And they, of course, couldn't predict that. So I would say there there are two kinds of tragedies. I think that Native American tragedy is a Greek tragedy. That is, was embedded. I don't see short of a hundred or sort of a million frontal lobotomies how it could have gone another way. I think slavery is a Shakespearean tragedy. I think that with the greatest leadership, we could have we could have done it. And so we have the greatest collection of leaders in American history, and they couldn't solve it. They couldn't it. do it. Essentially, in, putting in Lincoln's platform of 1860 of constraining it in the South and not That's going right. to territory. Right, right, right. Remember, in 1860, he's not talking about ending slavery in the, in right. the original states. Mm-hmm. And, but the South secedes just because they know that if it's, slave, if it's ended in the territories, it's they can't, you know, they they believe they can't sustain it in the in in their own states. That's they they're the ones that launched the war, of course. Lincoln believes that, and he did some own research, and you know that a majority of the people at the Constitutional Convention, for example, opposed slavery, and that's probably true. But then the, the abolitionists called the Constitution, a, you know, covenant with death. Slavery is the original sin of American history. Nobody can deny that. Racism is the enduring toxic residue of slavery. No one can deny that. That's all true. But show me another multiracial society in the world. None. Ours is the only one. And we're trying to do something that no nation in world history has ever done. A total equality among different racial and ethnic groups. And we're making like progress, but every step forward, we get something against us. But again, look at the Olympics look at the people on our team and look at everybody else's team. That's the reason we're going to win. I'm a cautious optimist on that front. And at this moment in history, that's a dangerous thing to be. Yeah, right. Now, that's true. Now, you, you, the, the fundamental importance of equality to America, also the importance of union. But in your studies of the revolution, a fact you remind us of is that that many of the, the people fighting then didn't envision a union post-war. They you know, right. that, that that wasn't the cinema. It's seen as a temporary thing. How did the founders change their perspectives and the public sentiment after the revolution to embrace that union? The the officers in the Continental Army and the and the people that served in the Confederation Congress or the Continental Congress 
at that national level tended to have a national view. Washington, Hamilton, uh, Lawrence, um, those people, they were a distinct minority. The majority of people perceived any federal government that was empowered to make domestic and foreign policy as a, as a coming, a domestic version of parliament. And that, in, the, that includes Jefferson and Madison, Patrick Henry, and Sam Adams, believe it or not, a northerner. The absolute majority is with the second group. The average American at the time, remember, is born, lived out his or her life, and died within a three-day horse ride. They don't think continentally or nationally. They think locally. It took a coup d'etat. And it's Madison working with Hamilton, working with Jay, recruiting Washington to lead the Constitutional Convention. The Constitutional Convention is a benevolent coup d'etat. If you took a vote among the people of the United States in 1787, and this is the white population because the blacks obviously couldn't vote, it would have overwhelmingly been, let's just stay the way we were, a confederation. And the Constitution is what one participant at the time said, a roof without walls. We establish a national government before we are a nation. And that's why Washington wants to visit all the states, talk to them, have a national college to keep people, bring people together from different sections of the country. It enhances Washington's achievement to hold us together. I mean, nobody can agree about what the cause means in these terms, except whatever it means, he's it. The commitment to a national definition of the revolution is a minority position at the end of the revolution. It's changed during the Constitutional Convention. But Jefferson's opposition party uh, redefines the Constitutional Convention to mean that they can make foreign policy, but not domestic policy. Essentially, they win the long-term argument. Once you get the Virginia dynasty, Jefferson for four years, Madison for four years, Monroe for four years, the fate of slave, slave of ending slavery is sealed because all those people are states' writers. So in the history books, it used to be that we just celebrate the arrival of Jeffersonian democracy. Isn't that great? <laughs> the problem is democracy because the majority of the American white population does not want blacks free. And if free does not want them uh, in the neighborhood. And that's a fact. Baldwin, James Baldwin talked about it in Notes of a Native Son. He said, we think that founding a democracy at a, nat at a continental level was really hard. And it is, but it's nothing compared to integrating, he called, he said, black men, he would now say black men and women into that. And he's right. We're trying to do, as I said, something that no nation in the world has ever done. And we're closer to doing it than any nation has been. You're right about those years after the revolution, the beginning of the Republic in books like the Quartet and all right. the, the, the assets and liabilities we had, as you said earlier, Republics often die in infancy. Why were we successful? Because we happened to have a collection of leaders, Washington at the top, who were prominent in both the revolution and the consolidation of the revolution. The founders, in order to qualify by Ellis's definition, you have to be present at the creation and then bring the creation into fruition. In most of the other revolutions, you get killed off. You know, the Bolsheviks kill the, the Mensheviks, the Gerundas, or the Jacobins kill the Gerundas. We don't have that. And so you've got a continuity of political leadership from 1770 to, you know, 17, well, to 18, whatever, 1810. Yeah. Uh, and that's remarkable because that leadership is diverse. It's able to 
create a balance at, at least uh, that's reflected in the Constitution itself that works. The big problem, of course, that's not solved, that's sitting in the middle of the room, the elephant, is slavery. And by the Missouri crisis, it's pretty clear, and Jefferson knows it, this is going to be a civil war. That's the only way you're going to resolve it. And 700,000 people have to die. So Washington is such a huge figure in American history. Hopefully through these few questions, Joe, we can learn a little more about his personality, okay? All right. You really want to understand. He doesn't want you to understand. <laughs> he really doesn't. You know, he wants you. He, he said, if you want to understand what I did, read my wartime correspondence. Let me tell you, it's boring. <laughs> and, um, and it's not going to tell you what he really thinks. He thinks his personal life is none of your business. And what he's, his reputation should not depend on anything that relates to that. It should depend on what he did as a soldier and as a president. And uh, even the, uh, but, but go ahead, because I know that we have to do it. If we have any technical <laughs> issues during this, we know that the great man is intervening. In he will post. definitely yes. block right. this. Yes. That's right. That's right. But to your point, Joe, so he, he, he almost felt like he was always on, very guarded, right? right? So my question, where and when did he feel comfortable letting his hair down? And where was he truly relaxed? There was an inner circle of people. Martha was clearly the number uno. And that was a good marriage. She would, And she joined him in almost every summer or winter encampment during the war. And that was tough to do. There was within the, the years and during the war, especially the circle around him was Hamilton, John Lawrence, uh, Lafayette. And the people he called his uh, penmen, he was very conscious of the fact that he was not well-educated compared to his other, compared to, say, Hamilton or Lawrence. Those are the inner circle that he would let his hair down with. But beyond that, God help you if you tried to come up to him. Well, one guy, I think it was uh, Governor Morris, suggested to a friend that he walk up to Washington at the Constitutional Convention during a break and put, him, put his hand on his shoulder and say, how you doing, George? Well, he was the last guy that ever did that. <laughs> and, um, uh, part of Washington's aura was his uh, his ability to keep distance from people. He did have this. And, you, you know, you wonder about Billy Lee, you know, like, I mean, we'll yeah. never know. But he was with him throughout the war. He saved his life a couple times, I think. And uh, he's, as I said, he's the only slave free outright in his will. But visitors to Mont, uh, to uh, Mount Vernon after his retirement from the presidency, several of them reported that the way in which Billy and George Washington communicated with their eyes, that he didn't say anything to Billy. He just moved his eyes and Billy knew what he had to do. And Billy would respond in that way. You wonder what, you know, I mean, you know, you could start making this up, but, you know, you don't want to write fiction. But uh, what did Billy think of the Declaration of Independence? And um what did Billy say about yeah. the Rhode Island Regiment, which was, just, you know, a black regiment? I mean, and, um, I don't know. We'll never know. OK, I've gone off in, in the direction. To, there is an inner circle. And when president, when president, you know, Jefferson's in it, yeah. Hamilton's in it. Jefferson does the stiletto thing on Washington. He really he really is behind his back, suggesting that he's in, that he's. The great man is the great old uh, man is too old, and and, um, and Washington finds out about it eventually when in his second term after he's died. 
Jefferson's president, he writes a letter to Martha and says, oh, I'd like to come by and see you because he's only 10 miles away. And I don't think Martha writes back. Washington has left instructions to her, do not let that man on the premises. Jefferson was a member of Inner inner Circle that then betrayed him and was forever cast into outer darkness. You were talking about Billy Lee and that relationship. I've often thought if there's one perspective that we mm-hmm. truly miss. I agree. I There, there was a project, a film project that um, I they, they bought the rights to His Excellency. And initially they thought it was going to make a miniseries about Washington. But I said, well, why don't we make it about Washington and Billy Lee? And it can be, you know, it, yeah. it depends on what you want to do. But they they hired a first you know, tier uh, uh, scriptwriter, and for a couple of years it was considered. And I think it's, you know, it's not going to happen. Only one or two percent of the things that are launched like this ever happen. I think it's a worthy idea. Someday maybe it'll get made. Such an intriguing relationship. All right, let's lighten things up here. The man Washington, he. <laughs> He loved to get down and boogie, right? Or at least the 1700s version of getting down. So where did he get his love uh, of dancing? Did his mom teach him how to get out there? Well, and... His mother apparently never taught him anything, but but she did provide a role model of strength to him, I think. And uh, she was a huge woman, by the way. I'm not fat, but tall and strong. I don't know. I think it was <laughs> Fairfax family you know, when he was a young man and uh, at Belvoir, and they would have dances there. And uh, but where did he learn to dance? I mean, I'm trying to figure out where I learned it. Somebody in a sorority taught me at William and Mary how to dance. And, but he was, and we know he was an elegant dancer. And, and this was, you know, like if you describe him physically, he could sound like an oaf. There's argument yeah. about how tall he is. I think he's six three and a quarter. You know, he's got very long arms, big hands, thick neck, big nose. But in motion, he's Fred Astaire, and he's on a horse. Yeah. You know, he's an equest. He's you know like an Olympic rider. He's muscular. He, he controls his body in ways that are distinctive, and so he is on the dance floor. And there's, there's, you know, Katie Green danced with him three hours in a row at some place in some winter encampment, causing all the people to stir, by the way. <laughs> and Martha and Martha say, don't worry, we of think course. of her as a daughter. But he is a dancer. <laughs> He's an athlete. As I said earlier, you know, think of him, some combination of John Wayne and uh, Socrates. I don't know. That's an interesting combination. I, I like that. Yeah. I was just trying yeah. to let that soak in. Yeah. So of these three titles that George Washington held, which meant the most to him? Owner of Mount Vernon, general or president? Oh boy. President meant the, the least. It's between the yeah, first I two. That. As a public person, obviously it's the war. It's being commander in chief. That's, that's where he thinks he made his greatest contribution. Mm-hmm. Personally, in terms of what he valued most in life, the vine and fig trees of Mount Vernon were the answer. But he didn't think that that was any of our business. All right. So finally, in just a sentence or two, here's your challenge. Can you explain how important it is for today's electorate, with all of today's political posturing, to still dive in and learn from Washington and the revolutionary period? I obviously think that we should. I think that less than half of the population could pass the civics test that new immigrants are required to pass. I think we'd be less vulnerable to misinformation if we did. And I think that the vast majority of current residents of the Congress and the executive branch, upon learning what the real values that they should embody are, would all commit suicide. 
which might be the best for us. And um, <laughs> because what they encounter is a person in Washington and in the founders who believe that the public service takes precedence over polls and re-election. Uh, a republic is by definition res publica, things of the public, not, not a popularity contest. The model that the founders offered in Washington provides is a gold standard. And I'm afraid the current, for quite some time, we're operating with very debased currency. You know, Joe, I've, I've learned a lot from your writings over the years, and certainly the cause continues that. But tell us a bit about that book and, and perhaps what's next for you. The Cause is a book about the 1770s, and it's chronologically what I should have done first when I was deciding to write about the founding, but I wasn't ready to. And in the same way that many authors, including yours truly, write the preface of their books last because they know where the story's going, I've written this one last. I'm happy with it. I hope it's good. But again, my judgment is myopic. I think it will help us understand why we won the war and what the implications are, the, both the good and the bad. I'm going next to write a book, the tentative title of which is we've touched on, Why the Founders Failed to End Slavery. And that It would be a different title. That's a descriptive title. But I really want to come to terms with that in a public way and uh, put that on the table. You can see that I'm starting to think about that in the current book. And so yeah. it's a thought process I want to, to enrich and, and make come alive. Well, again, I'll just say I've been such a, a fan of your work for so long. I really appreciate all you've done for history and for helping us better understand uh, some very important times in our, in our nation's history. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining us on American POTUS. Alan, thank you, and Scott, and I, I trust you to make me sound like I'm making sense on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Take care and be safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank best-selling author Joe Ellis for joining us on these episodes about the revolution. More information on all of his terrific books can be found on AmericanPotus.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPotus.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 50-plus episodes that are available in the playlist, covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from George Washington, quote, Be courteous to all, but intimate with few and let those few be well tried before you give them your confidence. True friendship is a plant of slow growth. <laughs>